I tried to be something I wasn't because I thought that's how it was supposed to be done. But now that I've found my own way and my own uh, philosophy in, a, in leading up to a project and the days on set, I like being approachable. I don't want to be siloed off. I don't want to be this inaccessible creative genius because that's really lonely. Welcome back to another episode of Waze. My name is Muhammad. I'm Osama. And this is the Waze Podcast. Today's episode is beautiful. It's uh, heartening. And I'm super excited because when you have someone that's in a field, in a field that we see all the time, we take it for granted. Yes, we watch commercials. We see photography. We see different ads. And we might think it's subtle, but we don't know the works that go behind it, the planning, the executions, the adaptability, last second, not knowing what to do, but you still have to get the job done. How was someone under the role of director able to work with all these different things, all these different people, all these different concepts, get it down to one focus, cohesive, single element, and give you the product that you might love, that you might revere forever, and how it impacts different people? Because it's one thing to do a commercial, let's say for McDonald's or Air Miles, which the guest we're talking about has done. But it's another thing when you do something for humanity, for Masai Ujiri, or you do something for ALS Society, or you do something for cancer research. It shows the dynamic as far as human society and how we live. And that's why I'm super excited, ecstatic, to have Matthew Menheyer, an expert in virtual production and a director and entrepreneur of Manhire Media. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I feel so humbled right now. <laughs> um, I'm doing amazing. and I'm, I'm really happy to share this space with you two and, and, uh, and just chat about whatever you want to chat about. I've been looking forward to this all week. No worries, man. Uh, my first question to you is, you grew up in Toronto, right? I grew up in a small town just outside of Toronto called Georgetown. Um, which has like a really strange reputation. Um, but then I moved to Toronto probably when I was about 20. And the whole game plan was to be like a big famous actor. And uh, I went to Toronto Film School. And, uh, you know, then I quickly found out that I didn't really want to be in front of the camera all that much. I much prefer to, to kind of get on board with projects a lot earlier. So it's... Um, yeah, it's been a cool road leading up to here, but it all started from Georgetown, Ontario. And the funny thing is, we know Georgetown because we're from Oakville. Uh, oh, no yeah. way. <laughs> so since we're from Oakville, every time we play Georgetown in sports, there'd always be a fight because, like, the rivalry and everything and, like, Georgetown reputation. But one thing I will say, um, I had a bad perception about Georgetown, but my old boss, he's been living there for the past 20, 30 years, actually stayed with his family for about two months in the summer. And it's actually one of the most beautiful places, like the hills, the like the structure and everything. It's such a quiet town, just like Oakville, but everyone's to themselves. It's very like peaceful. And it's one of those things where you could just go anywhere and the scenery is just a beautiful place. Yeah. So it has a lot of Georgetown. character to it. Yeah, big time. And, it, and it's really developing into something that I kind of always wished it, I w it was as a kid. Um, like I was born at Peel Memorial Hospital which is like Brampton is its own microcosm of culture. And, and, you know, there could be a whole anthropological study just on Brampton alone, but Georgetown was always really lacking in that department. So like the moment that I got my license or even before that, before what I found out what the go bus was and that I could pick it up at the Georgetown mall and take it to Yorkdale shopping center yeah. and then TTC into the city. I was doing that, like skipping school and doing that as much as possible. And I thought I was like, 
at the cutting edge of culture just because I was going to Kensington Market. That was like, of course, was, yeah. was stretching outside yeah, of, of course, my Georgetown of <laughs> kind of bubble, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's come a long way. And, and going back there, you know, once or twice a year, and just seeing how far it's come in terms of, you know, seeing more than one color of human being and, and seeing like retail businesses open up that really reflect uh, a little bit more of a, like a full ecosystem is, is it's heartwarming. I like it. Can you tell us about your creative process and how you go into finding and capturing authenticity in your photography and film projects? That's a great question. Um, I feel like my process is always in process, to be honest with you. It, it even sounds funny to answer that question because I feel like as an artist, I'm still so in it that it's maybe moments like this where I, ha where I get the opportunity to look back a little bit and reflect and create an answer to that. So I'll do my best. But I think for me, I feel my purpose here on earth is to explore and connect. And uh, I, I bring that to everything I do, my relationship with my wife, my relationship uh, now more so as an adult with my family and my relationship even to you two right now. This is an exploration of, of connectivity. So, you know, whether it's I'm working with somebody um, who is, is living with ALS and, you know, unfortunately the data is there that probably within a few weeks to months after my interaction with them, they're going to pass out of their physical form uh, onto the next fate chapter of their, of their soul's experience. Um, you know, everything from that all the way up to, yeah, doing an air miles commercial where I've, I just need this person to say it in a way that doesn't sound like they're a poser. And I, 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 I think that's where my consistency as a director and my ability to touch stone back to my values and my purpose on this earth really allows me to um, create a safe place um, for people to maybe fail or act stupid. Um, and when that process isn't going well, I just take the first step off the cliff into looking stupid by saying something dumb, um, you know, and just making sure that the person in front of the camera knows that they might be the second most embarrassing person in the room. And that really changes the dynamic of, of things on set. When I think about your whole like canon of work, the one thing that stands out is just like the space. It's like a frequency to it. There's not that much dialogue because most commercials has like a dialogue, a general format. But for you, it's kind of more spaced out. It's more about the actions that kind of tells a story. And the dialogue is like second so I wonder if that plays on your personality. Are you like a very easy, caring, going person? Do you love meditating? Do you love like reflecting? Like it feels like there's a huge connection between the themes in your commercials and probably your personality. Is there any meaning behind that? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I definitely enjoy meditation. I, I've had the opportunity to do uh, like 10 day silent meditation retreats, Vipassana. Um, right before this, I had a yoga class. Um, again, these are just like little touchstones to, to take care of myself and regulate my emotions and my, my presence on this earth and take accountability for, you know, the space I occupy. Um, but in terms of that translating to my work, yeah, I, I definitely try and mix up a sense of kind of overwhelmment, if that's even a word. If it's not, let's roll with it. And uh, a sense of calm. So if you see with like with the Arcteryx piece there, the, the young lady like falling at the start of the project and then finding her way back up, um, you know, with the Masai Ujiri project, the calmness and stoicism of Masai uh, is unmistakable. But yet then we ha cut to all this other 
footage from, that I grabbed from around the world of things being a bit more chaotic. Uh, and I think that juxtaposing those two, whether it be external or internal chaos with internal or external stoicism or peace um, and putting those two in the same container and just letting them exist together really shows like a neutrality that we can all kind of grab onto as humans. We all kind of want to be in that pocket where we're able to observe things around us and maybe not react, but respond or just let it be. And um, I think my ability to let things be and let things play out rather than try and jump in and solve or jump in and react um, creates a pace to my work that I, I really enjoy. Even with my portraiture, where it's not a moving image, um, uh, that person's soul and being is very evident. And that's a beautiful answer because with directors, there's a whole like, I don't know if it's a misconception or it's actually true, is a fear as far as dealing with the director because they have so much to do that to take on this big task and get the job done. So they don't want to hear anything that's like a waste of time, kind of BS, nonsensical. And the fact that you said like you do these different things as far as meditating uh, the 10 day, um, just to relieve yourself, decompress, and to see the bigger picture, it's kind of amazing to know that you're approachable. Uh, you're not going to be as super offensive. Do you see that with other people? And like, I don't want to talk to him because he's the director. So I got to like either be scared or timid or I got to ask him something quick and stuff. Do you like let people know like, hey, like I'm just human like you guys. Like there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, I think traditionally, especially because the film and television industry was founded upon a hierarchy that's very similar to the military because um, it was kind of an industry that spawned out of post-war, um, seeing as now that entertainment was kind of founded during the war, almost in a way, and was proliferated during the, during the war, like we saw with propaganda pieces and war films and things like that, to give people back home the experience of what soldiers were experiencing overseas. So the, the movie industry really gathered a lot of steam, and a lot of post-war soldiers were coming back and doing labor work like gripping and lighting and electrical and stuff like that um so there was a military kind of hierarchy that came from that and now present day as we're shedding things like patriarchy and and hierarchies and we're seeing the disevolution of the royal family kind of happen and the loss of interest i think there's been kind of a reshaping of the film and television industry and Yes, it, order is something that's very important to a project and a process to get things done. But, you know, I, I came up under some really uh, very stiffened directors and photographers that mentored me. And I, just, I tried it. I tried to be something I wasn't because I thought that's how it was supposed to be done. But now that I've found my own way and my own uh, philosophy in, a, in leading up to a project and the days on set, I like being approachable. I don't want to be siloed off. I don't want to be this inaccessible creative genius um, because that's really lonely. It's really lonely when people are afraid of you. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, it's a different brand of loneliness. The, the type of loneliness that like champions exhibit and, and experience is one thing because you've achieved something, but as a director, you're never really achieved anything. Yeah. So it's, you're always in process. You're always just building your work portfolio to the day you die. So, you know, why isolate yourself? There's so many beautiful artists involved in film and television, like production designers who are some of the most unique and entertaining people to spend time with and get paid to spend time with. Actors are wonderful people um, as well. It's like, 
to put yourself into an industry that is so heavily reliant on collaboration only to silo yourself is kind of counterproductive. And I haven't seen a result in where the work is better because of that process. I have to agree with you too, because I think that you can also learn from different people that you work with as well, different stories to get to hear their ideas. And I think that also makes your product better. It's almost like a business or in sports. Sometimes they may not be the most talented person, but they understand the game and they understand, the, they understand something really, really well. And through that one conversation you have with them, you pick up an idea. Because I feel also within friendships, within society, as you said, like so eloquently, you don't want to be feared. You want people to like, approach you, come talk to you, and be the guy. And like, again, like being feared in certain situations might be maybe like if you're a, bas- a certain athlete and, and, and you want people to fear you because you want to win the game. But I think when it comes to collaboration, you want people to, be, to approach you and say, hey, I have an idea for this. Do you think it's going to work? Mm-hmm. Very elo- eloquently put, Osama. I couldn't agree with you more. Can you talk about any particular themes or messages that you strive to convey through your work? And how do you achieve doing this while you're like working on your projects? Um, I think if there was an overall theme, it would be kind of like a, like an everyday Joe hero kind of feeling to things. I, I really like to make people look good. Um, I never wanted to be um, like a gotcha director or photographer like where it's like i catch people with their pants down and then we're now laughing at them uh, i never wanted to be that guy um and that might come from you know growing up you know the in the situation that i did but i just i just know i've always wanted to make people look really good and fun and cool and bring up the best in them and i mean that translates to my real life i just want to see the best in people and it's a it's a gift and a curse as as i'm sure you two know about in your own lives it's um i really think if now that i'm saying it hearing it out loud that if there was to be a theme it would just be the the best of people and i think i've captured that especially you know in in my work with the children's aid society and and als and even Masai. he was like Masai was a stone wall to get through to um you know and to get him to make time for me so again just putting myself in the position of being the first most embarrassing person in the room really got somebody as stoic as Masai to to un- unfold and, and at least uh, get a little uncomfortable for even a brief second for us. Okay, I need you to explain more about what you mean by the most embarrassing person in the room because a person in your position, as we outside don't really see someone saying that because the quote unquote is like, you want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to be the most entertaining person in the room. You want to be the most wisest person in the room. Why is Matthew Manhire, with everything accomplished so so far, is saying that you want to be the most embarrassing person in the room? Well, I, th- that's a great question. And it's not something that's effective 100% of the time. But it's like that statement where it's like, if you see, if you see yourself as a hammer, then everything else around you is a nail. And for me, it's just one tool in in kind of my toolbox. So in that situation where an actor who has spent 45 minutes getting makeup put on them, another 45 minutes being picked and prodded with wardrobe to make sure everything's perfect, by the time they arrive to me and then they get put in front of lights, they're either going to feel totally in their element or they're going to feel completely alienated, like everyone's looking at them. And the reality is everyone is looking at them with their physical eyes, through monitors in the back. I've got clients that are literally judging them for their existence and they can feel that. So in that particular time, that's when, 
you know, that's that tool of being the most embarrassing guy or just being perceived as the most embarrassing guy in the room by them is everything I need because then they feel safe. Obviously in a situation of um, like pre-production in a meeting where I've got 26 people that are representing all different departments, agencies, interest groups, that's when I need to be the leader and go, this is how it's gonna go. I am the expert, you've hired me to do this job. This is how it's all gonna unfold and that's because that's the formula that works. That's the time to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, But in that particular situation, that, that wouldn't work. They would just kind of shrink and become less uh, interesting. As far as your influences, because you probably grew up in a special time, whether it's the 90s, early 2000s, it's a different type of society, different kind of clothes, music, entertainment, films. Yep. Um, the funny thing is, like, the new generation is looking towards the 90s, early 2000s as retro. So everyone's trying to wear the same clothes and all these different things. But you being a part of it, especially like growing up in Georgetown, what were some of your influences as far as music? Um, actors, directors, and films that used to make you go crazy uh, as a young person? It's funny. For me, films was always a connection to my biological father. That was the thing we did every other weekend when he, he would come, when I would get my time with him, is we'd go to Aaron Mills Mall, and we there used to be a mini putt course in the center of the mall, and we'd go catch a movie and then go to the food court. And that was like rinse, wash, repeat, and it was the best. And I think what really came from that was like, honestly, movies that are unwatchable to me these days, which is like Ace Ventura, that detective and, and stuff like that. But like, I remember like staying up late and watching like, like softcore porn way too early, like red shoe diaries with uh, David Duchovny and stuff like that. I don't know if you remember that it was like basically Californication before Californication was a thing. And I think, like a lot of that like cheesy storytelling really inspired me somehow but then that thankfully translated into you know more respectable stuff and but what it did was it planted the seed of tv and film being something special staying up late to watch completely inappropriate television for an eight-year-old or you know laughing at jokes that i didn't quite understand i just knew that jim carrey was being goofy looking and his physical comedy And then that translating into, as I evolved, um, you know, tickling my brain to make me laugh, you know, getting more into films like Wet Hot American Summer uh, and and those kind of more subtle kind of comedy, like Paul Rudd style comedy. Um, But then, of course, like action movies had a big inspiration, like being on that border of Georgetown and Brampton, the Fast and Furious franchise was huge, like going to the movie theaters and then everyone going out racing like off of like Goreville road and then running from the cops, like all of that played a huge part into what I was becoming as a, as a consumer of music as well too, because at that point, like I was hearing like, um, like hypnotized for the first time when I was 10 years old and like never can't even conceiving like these noises and then seeing the music video for that with notorious BIG and his big like speedboat in Miami cruising across it. Uh, cruising across the ocean uh, harbor there. And then that translating into like hearing like Talib Kweli for the very first time and just like losing my mind. Oh my God, I couldn't believe somebody could uh, like speak with such ferociousness. And then like on the more pop side of things, like hearing Busta Rhymes come out when he was like really tuned up and like just like spinning so hard and so fast. And I really resonated with that because it was so close to 
no effects. It was so close to Rage Against the Machine. It was so close to Nirvana. It was all saying the same thing is that I'm not going to be who you expect me to be. And I'm going to break out of this box. And um, that was a huge theme for me. You know, there's a huge breaking out of Georgetown, you know, breaking out of, you know, not turning out who I thought I was going to turn out to. You know, I love that saying that being a non-religious person, I love this saying. It's like, uh, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. And that's like all that kind of just ties into the things that I like to consume, which are things that I find surprising. I love to be surprised. I love to be entertained um, by things that are, you know, challenging to my beliefs and challenging to, to my day-to-day existence. Yeah, it's beautiful how you're able to tie all of that and that thread because I remember hypnotized as a kid. Just that scene alone of Biggie and Puff driving in the Hummer and Puff is reversing Wild. full Wild. speed while they're getting chased. Like to this day, I've never seen anything like it. And uh, Buster Rhymes, uh, put your hands where all my eyes can see. Oh my that God. video alone, the whole coming to America theme, like now I'm speaking to you and I think about it, Hype Williams alone, like it's probably arguably the greatest hip hop oh uh, director of all time. His videos, a lot of classic videos, his style, iconic, yeah. innovative. Uh, can you speak about Hype Williams and his influence on you potentially? Hype Williams, I, I mean, he dominated the music video scene. Like, I feel like, especially, um, what was it? Uh, was it Rhapsody that was on Much Music kind of late night? Rhapsody was BET. Um, was the one on Much, the one on Much Music was, it was Rap something. I know, yeah. yeah. The one they used to do on uh, Young Street. Uh, yeah, yeah. I forgot the name. I forgot the name. <laughs> I can't remember, but those those were like like staples in my week watching that television. And I feel like for a while, like the top twenty was dominated by his videos. And if it wasn't him, then it was Director X. So ingesting all that content, you know, for better or worse, uh, definitely had a big shaping on on who I am and and. Even I look at some of the camera angles that I use. Like if you look at my latest Air Miles spot that we shot in virtual production, just kind of just keeping things low and iconic on people. Um, yeah, I, I, and even just like the lighting choices I make for sure uh, are inspired by by those two directors. Those were pivotal years for me. Very of a you know spongy years. You could have thrown anything at me, and I would have been like, "Whoa, that's neat." <laughs> yeah. And even um, like you said, Director X, man, when Get Busy came out. Like when that video came out, like I was a kid and I was like, this is, you just knew the impact. Like it was insane. And the fact was on Toronto and it was just like, obviously everyone knows work, but like, there's no work without yeah. Get Busy and Director X and every, like it was, those are moments, moments, moments. Like that put them on the map. Sean Paul was already like bubbling up, but when Get Busy, like you just felt the shift, you know, in the culture. Wait, that it was, was filmed in Toronto? Yeah. Yeah. I have friends that, that said that a tobacco like yeah yeah, yeah it's like, like toronto yeah 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 i think that was the a, a lot of friends that i had said that it was the first video where they really saw themselves in it and i think that that's really cool that the that was a really pivotal video for representation i think and then of course i don't think i went to a single party in brampton after that where we were <laughs> bashing on the heating system after <laughs> it's so iconic <laughs> I have a question. My next question for you is, uh, how do you approach by collaborating with clients and other creatives and what role do you play in shaping your final product? Um, for me, I, I, 
I was told by a mentor once that I'm, I'm like a, uh, my attitude and outlook is that I'm a tribal leader in the sense that I love to introduce people and put them in the same room. It really, like, I get really excited about that. So for very selfish reasons, um, I enjoy like introducing people. And I think that that translates to creating a really exciting environment for day one, you know, or even just pitching on the project, trying to win the job. Um, there's always an excitement of a new person, a new perspective, new challenges. Even if we don't get along on a personal level, I'm excited by that. Like nothing's really overly negative as long as there's no like hate being sent back and forth. Um, that's kind of my boundary. But, uh, you know, being able to, to bring in these different people and then layer in different departments, layering in wardrobe, layering in production design, layering in an editor who's going to craft the final product. Um, you know, I, all of that is, is, is brought to, with a really genuine excitement. And in terms of collaborating with my, my clients, uh, that's something that I've had to hone over the years because when I first started out, I was so insecure and the, the agency folks to me were so untouchable. You don't talk to them. You don't look them in the eyes, just make sure that the PA gets them coffee and we're good here. But that got really boring really fast. I think after like the third job, I remember telling my manager at the time, I'm like, we're not doing that anymore. And I need you to let them know that that's not how things are going to run. So then it became right off the bat, as I'm like literally selling the job to them, like you should pick me out of the other two people. It's like, look, if you don't want to collaborate with me, then I, I shouldn't be working on this job with you. And just setting a precedent and letting them know who I am and that mm -hmm. I'm taking this job or I'm bidding on this job because I want to collaborate with them. I want to expand their ideas. I want us all to grow together. And, um, you know, that works for some clients that they're like wow this is so exciting and we can't wait to really get our hands more dirty with this project and then some clients are like nah bro we just wanted to hand this to you and show up on the day and drink prosecco and then head home at 6 p.m so it works for some and it doesn't work for others but i've been in the situations where they totally hands off and i think 10 times out of 10 they end up you know not really liking the final product and wondering why and um and the process is really boring um, and those type of clients, I'm not going to name names, but they mm -hmm. tend to be really shitty towards my team. And, uh, you know, again, that's a boundary for me is, is respecting the team of people that are crafting your project. They're, they're holding me up. And if any of them should tremor, then it makes me insecure. So I want to make sure that everyone on my team is strong. Yeah, I have to agree too. Cause I think, I think in the past, like when we first started like ways, sometimes I feel like you, the best way it is like even if you don't get along personally is to find a professional uh, way to like collaborate because end of the day I think the end goal for any creator is the product to get done and finalized for people to like it and I think like, when there's too much toxicity from what I've seen and I'll, I'll, I want to hear your opinion is uh, yeah, when there's too much toxicity is like nothing's gonna get along you get more, more arguments and I think ego gets involved do you think that you find it hard to work as a director you find it hard to work with creators who have a huge ego because they want it their way and they don't see it other, any, any other way um, it's definitely challenging, um, but it's also something that doesn't typically last long. Like what you just described, I've discovered is a very surface level defense mechanism. Um, I don't think anybody truly at their core um, thinks that they're entirely right. <laughs> I, I think that that mindset is very fragile. 
And with that, the process of just working together is going to deconstruct that really fast. And where I lose control is the person's reaction to me being put in front of them, how they react. Do they acknowledge something about themselves that they need to open themselves up to suggestion or uh, constructive criticism or the uh, co-collaborators process? Or do they puff up and and, uh, become maniacal about their ego? Um, Those are things I can't control. But what I can control is my response to that. And my job, which is a director, is to create a container to hold all this in, which is this person's ego. Okay, let's be aware of it. Let's acknowledge it. It's there. And then, you know, this person's sensitivities to people with, a, with a, a, an ego, just, uh, you know, dysphoria, um, you know, just kind of just managing and working individually with everybody. And sometimes I've got to, um, you know, isolate somebody and in a way that makes them feel empowered, like, hey, we got you your very own monitor. You can just <laughs> stay right here and we're going to bring drinks <laughs> to you. And this is going to be your world. We're going to get you a radio. And we're going to have, you're going to have your own PA to just relay messages back and forth. And that's a solve that makes them feel really special. Their ego is being stroked and it keeps my team safe from, um, you know, their kind of disruptive behavior. And again, at the end of the day, they're just being human and they've got, let's call it 20 to 45 years worth of trauma as their backstory that's created this person before them. And, uh, you know, just try and be aware of it. That's really it. Yeah. Uh, my, my last question for you is uh, can you share a particular memorable or challenging project that you worked on and how you overcame the obstacles that arose during the process of creating your project? Oh, geez. Um, That's a great question. It's kind of hard to pick just one because each project is so uniquely challenging in its own right. Um, Some projects are more challenging in the upfront. um, And the reason for that is maybe an insecure client or an insecure agency um, who is just not able to see the vision. Um, You know, even if you put it into a storyboard, they're just not able to Mm -hmm. see it um, because they might be more logical brained. That's typically the the kind of diagnosis of things being challenging in pre-production. And then things being difficult on the day of the shoot, uh, again, comes down to uh, typically, nine times out of 10, the client's uh, acknowledgement that they don't have control over the situation, that it's under my control. Um, That's typically what happens there. Usually the most problems happen in post-production when you're crafting the edit and it comes down to beats. It comes down to, um, you know, the arc of the story playing out, the shots that are being chose, the performances. Um, that's typically when the most challenges arise because it comes down to, no, I like it better when she had her sunglasses on versus had her sunglasses off. Uh, You know, that's when the most battles seem to kind of happen. But, you know, thankfully there's executive producers and managers that can kind of turn my ego flare-ups into a very nice professional email (laughs) (laughs) rather than putting me on the phone and vice versa. There, my clients have producers that can translate their ego flare-ups uh, into uh, some dialogue that I can hear and, and will absorb. But at the end of the day, challenges are going to exist. And I genuinely can't pick just one specific project because it all just seems like a, a smear of peaks and valleys for the last you know 10 years. But um, 
at the end of the day, how I've learned to problem solve those, those issues that come up is, is not reacting, being non-reactive and just accepting it all with equanimity and responding appropriately or doing a work back from what I think the solution is. You know, like, what do I want? I want to be at peace right now. I want this person to leave mm-hmm. me alone. What do I need to do that? Oh, well, they need to be validated. Or, you know, like, I need to speak more concisely. I need to make an illustration so they can see my vision, so they don't need to use their lack of imagination to try and, you know, perceive what I'm trying to say. Things like that. I love how you talk about conflict resolution and the approaches, especially when it comes to respond versus reaction. Those are two huge things that we take for granted. And if you don't realize the difference, it's the difference between life or death, um, in a sense. Now, when it comes to you being so good at directing, so good at advertising, photography, even, you know, personal stuff as being introspective, there's something that comes with that. And you are married. And with that, with marriage, is ups and downs. It's trying to figure out how to be the best version to your wife and as for her to be the best person to you as well. Speak on the importance of your marriage and how has it been so far and what is it like being in a marriage to someone that sees the value in you that's going to push you when you don't feel like doing anything and really believes in you, like your ultimate fighter that sees the grace in you when no one else could see that even during your worst moments. Yeah, being in close relationship uh, with Ray and also pursuing a life that's meaningful to me are definitely at times at opposite ends that it's unavoidable it would be disingenuous for me to say otherwise typically when i'm in a project um i'm not showing up as my best in our relationship and i think over the last four years that's something that ray on her own has learned to observe and acknowledge Um, and depersonalize herself from that experience. And I think that that is the lesson that I've learned from her is that autonomization of two individuals is the most important thing to making a one relationship work. A lot of people think that when you partner up with somebody, you become one. And that's beautiful if that works for you. But for us, what works is being in remembrance that she is her and I am me. And we have this third thing, which is our relationship that we co-create. Um, and yeah, when I'm in full-blown director mode and I am feeling a bit nervous about a job coming up or I'm you know, doing two weeks of prep every day, um, dealing with different things coming up, dealing with curveballs or you know, budget adjustments, and then having to turn that off and then speak to another human being as a lover, as a best friend, um, can be a little challenging for me. So I'd say that's still something that I'm not perfect on. I'm working on actively every day and every chance I get to acknowledge that behavior in myself. And I think that's beautiful, the fact that you guys see that and you're just working towards it, as opposed to something that becomes a lingering effect, which could lead to two people growing apart. But the fact that you guys are your own individual selves, both respective works and fields, but obviously the relationship, something you guys could both add on to the best way you can. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And it's surely, it's totally should be commended mm-hmm. because you're not, no one's able to really decipher that and mm-hmm. figure out where to put, you know, this tool goes over here, this tool goes over here. And let's just try to work it between me and you. Like one nail might've came out, but we're going to tightly put it back in together and stuff. Right. As mm-hmm. we should. And 
one more thing I want to ask you is your dogs. You have two dogs as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> talk about the influence <clears throat> and just the overall love you have for them. And, you know, just like that aspect where you're doing so many different things, but when you see them, it just like makes you forget everything. Speak about that. Um, so for me, dogs is, is they're, they're like children for me in, in the sense that, you know, um, it's something outside of myself that I, that I have to care for and they completely rely on me. And so my one dog, Toby, I've had him now for 14 years and, you know, we're talking about, so I'm 38 now. I got that dog when I was 24 years old and I was definitely a very different person. I was 24 years old, you know, caring about something else other than my own self and ego and, you know, getting out of a survival mechanism of just treading water or trying to make it or, you know, um, become a vision of myself rather than just exist. That was kind of where I was at. And to have a dog suddenly put in my life um, meant that I had to like love something because dogs Dogs don't thrive in hateful environments. Unfortunately, they survive, you know, which is sad, but they don't thrive. So everyone knows the difference between a happy dog and a sad dog, right? Like it's, we can unequivocally say that it, we can look at a dog and be like, that dog's happy or then that dog's not happy. And being able to get that instant feedback from another living being, uh, how good of a job I was doing at putting love out into the world, completely transformed my life. And you know, as Toby gets older and older and older, it becomes very apparent that that dog has a purpose. And for me, that dog's purpose in my life is to teach me about loss and death, ultimately. Um, Because, you know, when he does eventually pass on out of this physical form, that'll be the first interaction with somebody very, very close to me passing away. And I'm grateful for that. But at the same point, um, it's it's a lesson that I, I acknowledge needs to be learned in my life. And then on the flip side of that, um, Ray at the start of the pandemic got a little blue nose pit bull named Nana, who has like reinvigorated another cycle of life into my life and Toby's life and our relationship. So if you look at the impact of this little breathing creature and what it's been able to do to transcend its presence across three different spectrums, another dog's life, my personal life, Ray's life, and our relationship. I mean, the value to that should be pretty clear to anybody listening to that. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to see something that can't talk in English receive your love. It's one of the most gratifying and validating things that I've experienced. I hope everybody gets a, to a sense of that in their life. Yeah, Absolutely. it's incredible. Yeah, beautiful answer. Yeah, you can literally listen to that hundreds, hundreds of times <laughs> and try to figure out <laughs> the inner layers, right? And that's incredible. Um, we want to play a small game uh, for everyone okay. that's like a photographer, videographer. These are things that they want to know. I know for sure people are going to come up to me and Osama. Why do you not ask him about his preference, this and that? So I'm just going to ask you about, you know, some things in that world and to see what you like as far as, especially in your beginning aspects growing up uh, in, uh, in Georgetown. So the first thing I want to ask you is, which lens is your favorite? Which camera lens is your favorite? Oh, boy. Um... Oh, God. I'm, okay, I just want everyone to know what my thought process is. Right now, I'm between... 135 mil 
and a 28 mil. Ooh. Um, I like the 135 because in order to get what I want, I have to be like this far away, which is just such an intimate, raw experience between two human beings. But with the 28 mil, it's like, I think it's about the closest to a human eye you can experience. And it's a great way to, because you can get these great vistas with it, but then you can also get in and get like really nice portraiture with like an environmental feel behind them. I'm going to say 28. Everyone, Matthew Manhire, 28 <laughs> mil. I'm sorry for one out some of the other lenses, but it is what it yeah, is. Sorry for you telephoto folks. I don't know what to say. Uh, favorite setting, aperture, ISO, or shutter speed? I remember when I first started my career, I was more into like mountain sports. So I was like chasing mountaineers around the Rockies and stuff like that. And at that point, shutter speed was super important to me because I wanted to capture action. It was so important to me to capture action, like lightning in a bottle moments. But I think more so now I've really learned to love ISO and find a, a huge amount of comfort in the grain. And I've gotten to a point with like some of my personal photography where I almost at the start, it felt bad. I felt bad because I felt like I was like phoning it in. But then I was like, no, like this looks like how I want it to look, which is like 12,000 ISO. It's a bit muddy in the background like 2.8 aperture and like 60 shutter speed. And I find that in like pretty much like any indoor environment, you know, with like a lamp on or something like that really gets me to, a, it hits me in the feels. Now, the next one to ask you, I'm pretty sure we know your answer, you being a director, but do you speak about the other format? Because even though people look down upon it, you've probably have to use it all the time. Raw versus JPEG. Which one do you prefer? Oh gosh. I think raw. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, asset <laughs> manipulation. I, yeah. Yeah, I want total control. I want total control. I use, I remember I used to shoot a lot on this Fuji X 100 or something like that. And then upload them right to my phone. I just remember like everything just looked like a bit like an Instagram filter, mm -hmm. like just kind of like a broad stroke with the, with the JPEG format manipulation. But yeah, raw for sure. But do you speak about the benefits in JPEG? Because obviously some people still prefer it, especially up and coming photographers. Um, they might not feel comfortable or ready to use RAW yet. So um, is there any be benefits you could tell them about JPEG and how they could use it and what could, they can learn from it as well? I think if you're going to shoot in JPEG, shoot on a camera that has presets in it. So I know like Fuji does like you can do a couple. There's like, um, like different film stocks and things like that. If the contrast and um and temperature is already mixed into your jpeg then i think you're laughing i think at least you've been able to manipulate the income uh the incoming image onto the sensor but there's just so much less to play with after the fact every time you lift levels you're like lifting general levels not just like isolating things so you know my answer to to that would be the the ability to let go of the fear of creating a crappy image will probably make the best images of your life. All right. Cause typically I'm assuming that fear comes from comparison because you see something on Instagram that you want to recreate or match, which chances are you're going to get, that's like going to be very fruitless because at the end of the day, you're going to have an image that looks like somebody else's or like somebody else's vision. So then you're going to be disappointed and unimpressed by it. And, or like the high from it will, will die very quickly. 
So to that, I say, make shitty raw image. I probably would rather see your shitty raw images than your crispy, clean, perfect JPEGs, to be honest with you. Nikon versus Canon. Holy shit. <laughs> um, uh, it's funny. One of my, my mentors used Nikon and it almost steered me off of it, but Canon would be the way to go. Although I'm about to buy a Leica Q, the Q3 when it comes out. So we'll... We'll see how that goes. But Canon is what I grew up on uh, from manual, even when I was like developing film in my basement as a kid and stuff, um, all the way up to now, I, I think I've got the R6 and the Mark IV and stuff like that. But yeah, Canon. R6, Canon powerful camera. Yeah. Uh, for all my black and white photographers, for all my black and white photographers, I got to ask this as well. It just came up. Leica versus Hasselblad. I, have you guys I used have. Hasselblad? Yeah. I, I, I have never used, worked with the files. Well, yeah, actually, I, I, haven't used it I used to work for Motorola, and their old phones had a Hasselblad attachment, which like had a pretty much like a similar lens. So I kind of like right. somewhat used it, but yeah, I don't mind it. Yeah, all I know is that like because I've been I, at one point I was gonna get like the Hasselblad X1D, it, like with that travel camera. And then I was like, damn, when I saw the price tag. <laughs> and then, <Yeah. laughs> you, you know, you read about the files and like, they don't really, sometimes like there's a weird thing with Capture One, like bringing the files into Capture One and like each photo might be like a gig, which is like, I don't even know what I'm going to do with that, to be honest with you. But Leica's seem to come in a little bit smaller file, but I do definitely like, um, like the dark tones and Leica shots in the Leica sensor way better. Yeah, I would say even just for like usability, I, I like a right from it to being in my hand. So working on it on a screen seems to be a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. N night versus day photography. Night every day. Night every day. What a silly yeah, answer. Yeah, no, yeah. If it's a photographer, <laughs> they're always going to say night. Always, yeah. always. Night what is a good vibe. Okay. For me, there's something about night photography. There's something about night photography. It's just like, it's such a trance. Like the city is quiet. Wherever you're shooting, and it's just like everything becomes alive. I don't know how to explain it. What does night photography do for you? Like, what what is it about night photography that makes you just feel like as if you're just, you know, like Tom Cruise running through uh, Times Square alone in Vanilla Sky? Like, it's as if that's like a night photography kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. I mean, my first answer to that, I think, would be that as a society, we're intrigued by shadows um were because they possess like the most unknown whereas like day photography everything's out there we can clear we can see a very clear image but the moment we start to see shadows of any kind or dark spaces it just becomes more intriguing uh it creates i think more of a visual contrast it places the subject like when everything else is dark your subject is very clear what you want the viewer to go to um is very like abundantly clear so i think the night feeling or the night setting almost like polarizes or vignettes the subject uh in a stronger fashion i also just to add on to that point me also because like toronto like i listen to a lot of toronto artists and uh, a lot of their music is dark so i think like also something about night photography and night yeah. music just just fits it, feel, it feels especially in toronto or like even parts of a gta like I prefer to take night photography because uh not well, not pretty me person but when I'm getting when I'm the the person getting the photo taken of I just like night because there's so much to do you could you could so much you could do with night versus day it's like your basic I don't know basic Joe photo you're, you're gonna be at the lake or like somewhere in the CN Tower. Well, too, with that too is that 
like shadows and blacks have the ability to accept more kind of color yeah. toning as well. So you can drive a little bit more interesting colors into shadows than you can into highlights. So I think that might, that might be something too. You can really put a bit more of a personal flair on, on the shadows, you know, isn't that interesting? Eh? I never really thought about it that way, especially because like, if you look at somebody like, like a painter, like Caravaggio who left his shadows black, like his shadows were black. There was no information in those whatsoever. And he made some of the most moody, beautiful paintings of all time. And um, yeah, I think that's probably inspired an entire generation. I'd say the Toronto street photography scene is probably heavily guided by Caravaggio and J. Cole. Yeah. <laughs> that's the mood of Toronto street photography. 24 versus 30 frames per second. That's an interesting one. So... My most recent short film, Flames, we shot that at 25 frames a second, um, simply because that's like industry standard over in Eastern Europe uh, and the way their televisions work. 30 is nice because you can always bring it back to 23.9. Um, but for, yeah, for me, it goes along with that ISO shutter speed conversation where I think anything to impregnate more of a sense of present kind of feeling like I was feeling a presence with the, with the subject, the better. And, and uh, yeah, 30 frames does a little magical thing. It makes everything seem a little bit more kind of sexy. It brings a little bit more interest to very mundane things, which is technically what all we're doing. It's just making very mundane human things look interesting. Yeah, you're right. 30 frames per second. It's more smooth. Uh, it's more the standard everything in like 24, 24 specifically. It's more like cinematic. Uh, which is actually kind of harder to do in a sense, right? The fact that you shot um, Flames, your short film, in 25 is actually interesting. Uh, but you said that's a standard as well. Um, now I want to ask you, there's a big debate as well, your favorite post-processing program, Adobe Pro or Final Cut Pro? Um, damn, that's a hard one because usually I, I collaborate with editors. Um, when I'm just messing around and just like making little things, um, I'll just use DaVinci, the free one, to be honest with you. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, it's all that work. It works fine for me. I That's one of those – editing is one of those skills that I, I just have not adopted at all. And I've been very lucky to have really great editors that I work with um, that they know all about that stuff. So that's uh, – I kind of leave that to them because editing is its entire craft. It, it, it is, I'd say a, a third uh, of the importance of the project, right? Because at that point you're getting into asset manipulation and story manipulation through editing. And you know, I leave it to the pros, but for me, Da Vinci. <laughs> I actually want to ask you because like Marquez Brownlee, like MKBHD, um, he's famously known for shooting his videos in AK at a decompressing at the 4K for YouTube. And everyone knows that he loves the red camera. Have you ever used the red camera and what's your thoughts about it? Obviously not anyone could just use it, it's super expensive, but have you ever used it before? Oh yeah, yeah, I've used the whole red lineup. We used the, which one would we use on Flames? Um, yeah, we used, we used a red for my short film. On all my commercial work, we use uh, like one of the versions of the RE. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I think it's just because it's got a, a reputation that agencies and clients really like. Um, 
on all like my kind of lower scale brand work, we use a Komodo just because it's easy to get around. Um, and it works, it works really well with like pretty much all vintage lenses. Um, so I don't really have a preference. Like if, if someone were to be like, we're going to give you a camera just to have, pick any one you want, I'd probably go with like the R, the new RE35. Yeah, that, that'd be sweet. I'd be okay with that $110,000 camera box. <laughs> <laughs> that'd, and, be, that'd uh, be cool. <laughs> and just to like, I have to know because it's a huge debate. Me and Osama go back and forth all the time about it. I'm very... I know what you're you going to I think I I'm right about it. What is the best... What is the best smartphone camera? Not no, video. video. We're video not talking about video. We're talking about... I actually was going to ask this question. Camera. No, no, no. no we're not talking, that's it's a separate, not a separate thing. thing. It's part of the phone. That's bro. a whole system. That's a whole system. We're talking about... <laughs> or That's a separate thing. That's a separate like whole thing. We're talking about photos, pictures. When it comes to pictures, which smartphone is the best in your yeah. opinion? I need to know what I'm jumping into. So which one of you is the Android user? That's me. I have the Google Pixel. Really? And Osama's iPhone, yeah. I judged that the other way. I don't know why. <laughs> For some reason, I thought Osama was going to be the gonna be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, but, uh, the, I'm the Android person. I used to be iPhone, person. but I used to be iPhone, but I switched to Android. That's so funny. So... One of my really, really good friends, he, he's all about the Google Pixel and his photos are beautiful. He's like one of those like amazing stoners that just like takes pictures of flowers all day. Like when he goes out for walks, he's incredible. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've never really owned or used anything other than an Apple iPhone for like the last like 15, 20, maybe 20 years. I think before that I was using like that little Nokia <laughs> tooth phone with snake on it. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I just went to that to an iPhone. But I mean, to say which one is better, I don't know. But uh, That's no, good. No, I'll on, take yeah. that. I'll go iPhone I'll... just because it's what I know. That's but... just pure bias. You haven't no, done but, any. But, but I will say this. I will say this. I will say this. That um, the photos that my boy posts on Instagram of flowers and stuff, I could watch them all day and they're gorgeous. So... You got to shout out his account, bro. You got to shout out his account. If you know at the top of your head. I don't know it off the top of my head. No, I don't. I don't. But that's hilarious that this is even a debate. All I know okay. is that all my Android friends are always telling me how their phones are crashing or it got hacked. Or like there's a problem. <laughs> like, Honestly, I, I've... It is a harder process. Hold on. I've used both because I used to work for Google and I've used their, I used their Pixel, Pixel 2, and I, ha- and I have an iPhone now. I can personally tell you from filming standpoint, iPhone's better. On a picture standpoint, Google Pixel, I'll give it to you guys. Like your your quality are crisp, okay? But that's why I want to ask yeah. Mr. I was going to ask the same thing, know. but look, I was hoping he would say iPhone so I could just like stick it to your face. But he gave you uh. An... Well, hold on, he hasn't really used the Pixel, so therefore well, we can't it's really. It's a smart man. It'll be biased. It's smart man. It's just biased at that point, right? Well, but it boils down, it boils down to this too. Is like the first thing that comes to my mind when you talk about these the Google phone is an on Instagram page with the flowers and like, it's gorgeous. Like the bouquet is really, really nice. Every time I look, he posts a photo on his story. I'm just like, damn, that's really nice. Honestly, Mo, you should start so, doing that. That's interesting. As a social experiment, <laughs> this might be all I know is the iPhone, but I'm a fan of Google photos. Exactly. So it all works out. It all works out. Yeah. And can you speak about your short film Flames? Because 
it's pretty cool and if people want to watch it ex- access it like what was your whole process as far as making flames the concept where it came from the filming how long did it take the overall experience was it one of your favorite moments least favorite moments how did it make you grow as a director what is flames now um, that's been out in your eyes uh flames i mean we shot it oh, just over a year ago but so it's about two young men who who want to be interpretive dancers but their grandfather wants them to be champion wrestlers uh and these two men they live in a essentially like a low-income neighborhood in the punjab and their grandfather uh lives in an apartment building that oversees the courtyard that they practice in and ultimately you know the film explores and expresses kind of the the concepts around uh generational trauma and generational toxicity um, that can seep its way into the masculine form. I'm very hesitant about putting the words toxic and masculinity in the same word because I don't think they belong together. I think masculinity is beautiful and I think toxicity is terrible, but never shall the two meet. Toxicity is what it is regardless of gender, genitals, um, or chromosomes. So this grandfather has this generational toxicity that, you know, he obviously through it being all he knows wants to pass it on to his grandchildren. Um, but thankfully the two of them have managed to adapt and build a set of tools that allows them to see outside of that and feel something outside of that kind of overpowering presence from him. Um, but making that film was crazy. I mean, we planned it out for, I think six, six months. Um, and then on the day it was pouring rain. So we thought we were gonna have to cancel it and move it to another day and as we were kind of planning that out we started to kind of like after probably three hours of rain things started to kind of lighten up a little bit and then we were able to like go film the grandpa's stuff because it was like on an overhang so we were like protected from the rain and we're just like okay this rain's gonna end in like an hour okay great let's get all the grandpa's stuff because like the thunder and lightning finally stopped and then it worked out really well because down in the courtyard, that rain created like a wet down look of the whole place. And I mean, to rent a water truck and have a water truck come and wet it down. So it looks like that would have been like two grand. So we just got that for free. So it was like, it was such a blessing and a gift and the light was so much better. So on that day, I'm of course going like, holy shit, this is all falling apart. Thousands of dollars, you know, these people I'm paying to be here, these people that have volunteered their time to come work with me because they believe in the project, all that's going to shit. And of course, in hindsight, you go like, everything went perfect. Everything went beautifully. Everything was a gift in that moment. Everything that didn't go right led to something so much better, better light, better atmosphere on the ground. Um, things like that. And, you know, we ended up capturing, getting a short film in probably like six hours of filming, which is wild. That managed to translate from late afternoon into night in real time almost. So huge accomplishment. And it's evolved and morphed ever since then, like having the Sundance Committee give their feedback on what they interpret the film to be. Last week, premiering it in Toronto at the Paradise Theatre for Toronto Short Film Fest and hearing a theatre full of people laugh or kind of gasp at certain moments kind of constructed a reality around my perception of my film that didn't exist before. So it's it's a really interesting process to go from an idea to execution 
to um, putting it out there, but then experiencing it uh, in a group mindset uh, setting. It's so interesting because like you kind of sparked an idea in my head. As a director and a photographer, you've worked on a lot of creative projects. You met a lot of creative people, collabed, and obviously worked a lot mm-hmm. of creative short films. Obviously, you, Muhammad asked you a question about inspiration. Now, my question is kind of more so about there's times where, we, as people, we, we enter creative block. And those creative blocks, sometimes we have trouble figuring out what we want to do, what our next project is. So how do you overcome that when you do hit creative block and you're like, man, I can't think of something? What do you do to get inspired to get yourself back to like working on your next project? That's an amazing question. Are you struggling with that right now? Honestly, are you asking for a friend? <laughs> sometimes I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes I like, recently I have been struggling with figuring out titles for podcasts or even uh, just figuring out ideas. I do have that issue right now. Like I'm not as like I want to say not as creative, creative as I should be. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I mean, I was there two weeks ago. I was there two months ago. I was there twenty minutes ago. Um, I think it's something that really ebbs and flows in anybody who's trying to create an output. Um, and what I'm coming to realize probably in the last few months is that input matters so much. And it wasn't until I tested the idea of cell phone regulation for me. Um, I'm, I'm not mastering it. And I have, you know, in quotes, failed many times or since discovering this, but not looking at my phone as soon as I wake up, not looking at my phone as soon as I get out of the car to see what I meant. Like, really taking time to create space in my mind so that I'm not just ingesting things through my prefrontal cortex and creating a backlog of scenarios and stimulation that my then this part of my brain has to process. So it's a very fragile thing, our brains, like being the consistency of jello, this, this is all we kind of have. There's Nana. So th- this is all we kind of have is this really soft, uh, mush in our brains to process these really complex things, complex emotions, complex interactions. Um, and for me, that's what creates blockages is when I'm overwhelmed with scenarios. So what seems to be kind of working recently is having the ability to just turn off my phone and not watch TV and not ingest things. And in those moments, I'm finding the ability to create space so that I can think <laughs> And new things can come to me, right? So I don't know if it, have you two ever played around with that, like just getting the phone out in a really intentional way. I actually have recently for the past I would say month. The first thing because usually the first thing I do is look at your phone, see who texted you, see your Instagram notifications. But recently I've been actually giving myself twenty yeah. to thirty minutes not to look at my phone. Just like when I wake up, don't even touch it, don't see who called because I do realize sometimes like by the time you wake up, right, your brain is not fully awake. It still needs time to process. Like you go wash your face. No. Right. So I just want to get myself get together. Cause I think that sometimes your brain is not even process take bad news. Like let's say for example, I don't know, we had a podcast and hypothetically someone canceled, which has happened. And then it ruins your day. You're like, no, like it's, I've already promoted it. So I actually don't look at my phone no more when I wake up. It's like, it's a struggle, but I'm trying, I'm getting better at it. It's really difficult to do. Like I, I, I'll be the first to say I'm addicted. I'm like full on addicted to my phone my phone screen, especially being an entrepreneur, like the next email to come in, the next text could be, a, you know, that could, that could ensure some, you know, some money and some opportunity. So, you know, that fear of missing out, that fear of not responding quick enough or being available, like really plagues me and it plagues and it feeds the addiction to my phone for sure. 
everyone knows oh. when it comes to phones, I'm not. <laughs> I'm the opposite. So I barely use my so phone. <laughs> I'm so jealous, Mo. So I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> I try to make sure not to be addicted or anything of that sort because I want to have time to like what, like everything you talked about, just to decompress, relax, and then when I come to it, I'm present, I'm aware, and I have that clarity, that mental clarity. If there's like a huge blockage in my brain and everything that disrupts the whole flow, yeah. I cannot function. I always need clarity. So I always want to make sure I have clarity. Yeah. And like you talked about yourself being an entrepreneur and missing out, me and Osama always talk about this. Like one thing that's very big for us, especially in our religion, it's just like what's meant for you will always come your way and what isn't meant for you will never happen. So let's say like you're supposed to work with this big client and you guys talked about it for months and everything. Like if it was already written in the universe or God or whatever deity you believe in, it was never going to happen. Even if he told you a hundred times, you got the invoice a thousand times or whatever, like it was never meant to happen. As opposed to if you were planning to do something, whether he's going to meet your, like how you met Ray or how you had Toby and Nana, like those different scenarios and things that was always going to lead up to that connection, that spark. Yeah. And those things you can't control. You have to be super thankful. So if you do miss out, maybe it is a blessing in disguise because yeah. maybe that client had something that could come as allegations or maybe something could have been bad as far as like, you know, someone canceling or who knows, God forbid, anywhere situation. So it's always, mm -hmm. you always got to be thankful. Always got to be thankful. I got to add on to your point, Mo. And this is actually a true story. I don't think I've ever mentioned it publicly. About two years ago, like around the pandemic time, because I was really addicted to my phone. We were walk we were I think we were going to like some protest or whatever it might have been. So I was we were walking from my house to Mo's house, like a 30 minute walk. And I remember him telling me, he's like, uh randomly, he said it, and it's not like we were, we were talking about something else, right? Imagine we're talking about food. He's, he's he says this. He's like, if I were you, I would deactivate my Instagram account. <laughs> I'm like, where's this coming from? And and I'll just say one thing about Muhammad. You might have uh, like friends Matthew who like who have good intuitions. This guy's intuitions is scary sometimes. Like he'll text me certain things I'm thinking about. I'm like, bro, like are you like an angel? Who are you? And yes, I, you guys I, are I, connected. Honestly, beautiful. And uh, and since that, and I think that was like May 2021. From May 2021 to August, I would say to even uh, July 2021, I had my maybe not July. From May 2021 to end of May, I had it deactivated. I turned it back again. He brought it back up to me back in July. He's like, if I were you, I'd deactivate it again. Cause like I was going through so much at that time. And uh, yeah, then I, I had, I think for three months uh, and since July, I had it deactivated. And the only reason why I brought it back is because we started getting bigger guests who want to be on our podcast. And I'm like, and I'm cause we have our, like our podcast accounts. So I'm like, let me bring it back. Let me go message them. But yeah, I think sometimes taking a cleanse from social media is really, really huge. Not in the sense of like, cause I don't really care about likes or posting none of that, but sometimes even your business, your work can actually get to you. Cause like oh, if something is not working sure. out, yeah. Especially if you identify who you are with your work. Like, like I think I, you, maybe you can relate to that too. Osama and Mo is like the, what you do is who you are. Yeah. Right. Which is actually funny because we spoke about that uh, last episode. Yeah. But we need to make that differentiation that, you know, our inaction and our action are two very different things as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what constructs, you know, who you are is it changes every day. Yeah. And that's, yeah, like you said, yeah. we spoke about the last episode because the classic Kanye West song, everything I am in the course, he says, everything I'm not made me everything I am. And we wanted to expound yep. how like people might have misconceptions about you based on actions they either didn't understand or they take for granted. And based on that, people might think like, oh, he's arrogant, he's uh, rude or inconsistent, but not knowing you're just like super passionate, you have, you're really ambitious about uh -huh. something, but 
the communications wasn't clear, you know? And yeah. as far as my last question to you, I want you to speak to the dreamer because as of right now, with everything you have and all the endeavors and collaborations and projects, you are successful in someone's eyes. And even the definition of success is very annoying because someone might be like, oh, unless I have 10 short films or 100 movies, collaborations, but success is like, it's subjective. Like it's based on what you perceive subjective to be, you know, of success. The dreamer, that person right now in Toronto Film School or that person that has their own IG account, <coughs> taking the bus, TTC, Go Bus, going to Toronto, different places, uh, different events like Buffer Festival to meet with potentially people like yourself and just shooting pictures or making short videos on TikToks, just like they want to be where you are and they're trying to get to that point where I could have everything that he has and maybe that makes me successful. And you were that dreamer. You probably still are that dreamer, obviously on a bigger scale. What advice can you tell to that person that wants to be where you are or that has that vision and that ambition, but they feel stuck? They feel as if their friends or parents are telling them that they're wasting their time, get a real job or go to like a real school and that potentially what they've been influenced by whether it's like softcore movies and like different films and stuff, um, all led to something that's just totally, you know, inaccurate. What do you say to the dreamer in this sense? Man, I mean, you said so many relatable things in that. And um, I mean, let's start with, you know, having uh, a, a circle around you that maybe isn't being or isn't coming off as supportive. And to that, I say, um, really curate the people around you. And sometimes that means making hard cuts. It really does, whether it be with friends or family, um, really curating who you spend your time with, but more importantly, who you listen to. And I think that might be the most important thing because listening is such an important skill. That's why they always say you have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? So if, if you're gonna do something that's meaningful to you, it's not gonna be meaningful to anybody else. So why take their advice, right? It, it makes no sense to take anybody else's advice because more than likely the advice that all of us are getting is their fears projected onto you. Their fear of you failing, their fear of you seeing you sad. They don't want that for you. So they're gonna try and protect you by telling you to do something that they don't think is scary, right? So. If your pursuit in life is to do something that's meaningful to you, then listen to everything, but don't listen to everybody, right? The wind in the trees has more value in audio than mo the things that will come out of most people's mouth in all reality. And what I mean by that goes back to our conversation in, in terms of creating space to just space out. That for me has been the most important time. And that's, you know, that would be the nucleus of getting over the creative hump or the, a blockage in terms of realizing your dreams you know it's one of those things where it's like if you've got a dream right now you better get good at making new dreams because chances are you're going to achieve that dream and what i found the way to achieve that dream is to find a way to turn that dream into a goal and now once it's a goal you can eat the goal the goal is much more physical than a dream so when you have a goal, then you have a tangible work back plan. I got to network with this person. I need to make more friends in the entrepreneurial film and tell them I need to create work that reflects who I am. I need to make moves 
to get to the goal and then the dream is actualized. Well, guess what? I've met, I've reached my dreams probably 10 times. I've exceeded my expectations. There was a kid, there's a kid in me at the skate park, at the Oakville skate park, running from the cops that thought that I was going to do nothing with my life, that I thought I wasn't going to achieve anything. And I've exceeded that times a million. So if you're going to have one dream, you best be getting good at making new dreams because you're going to achieve your dream. And then what? You know, and to the people that think that achieving dreams is going to bring you happiness. I was in a movie theater watching my film get a tons of laughs, tons of laughs and applause. And then the next day I'm like, well, shit, now I got to do something else. Right. So if you think achieving your dreams is going to make you happy, it will. But you need to know that happiness is not a permanent state of being. Happiness is a fleeting emotion. It's like anger, anxiety, sadness, happiness. It's all sand in your hands, baby. It's just going to just flow right through you. And the harder you try and hold on to it, the faster it's going to evaporate in your, through the cracks in the fingers. So finding a sense of security in yourself and your values and your purpose, like we started out this conversation, my purpose being to explore and connect. As long as I can hold on to that core purpose and value on this earth, then I feel untouchable. Did I say I am untouchable? Absolutely not. I crumble. I have moments of vulnerability. I have moments of being in deep, dark places. And I work through them and I face them head on. So if you have dreams, be prepared to make new dreams because that's not going to be where happiness is. But just get attached to the process of getting to that goal. Be attached to the process. Be okay with the fact you're not going to be okay every day. Be okay with that. Because at the end of the time, you're safe. You're fine. For the most part. I'm not speaking for the entire world here. But if you're in a position to dream, you're okay. It's a privilege to have that bandwidth to dream. Even just that right there. To be able to sit and dream is such a privilege. And then, of course, to layer on the ability to make creative things. What another, what another privilege, man. So acknowledge that privilege and be okay in the process. And with that, there is no better way of ending this episode by saying thank you for the gems, the rare gems given. And for anyone that has a dream that can see it or not see it, that wants to take that route, knowing that the dream is up there, like you said, you need that goal, that physical reality. And you have to take those measures yep. and figure out a way to put yourself in those positions and those circles and that environment to give yourself the best opportunity. If you know that you are going to go out there and strive to be the best that you can be. And like you said, happiness is temporary. It's not permanent. So therefore, it's like waves. There'll be times where you do fall inside and seep in and drown. But you have to know that you can pull yourself out and that there's people that's with you, that's loved by you. So reach out to those people during those dark moments, because when you do and you come out, do you see the moon so beautiful and such a beautiful night? Um, Matthew. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> Mo. I, felt, I felt that. Thank you. Matthew Manhire. Thank you so much for coming on. This is an incredible episode. Definitely timeless episode. I know. Oh, Osama. <laughs> I enjoyed every I single moment of this episode. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed every moment with you two as well, Osama and Mo. It's been a privilege to spend this time with you, really. I, I respect and appreciate what the two of you are doing and the work that you do. The things you make are beautiful and the, the conversations you have with people are inspiring. And I appreciate to be a part of your journey. And if anyone yeah, wants to contact it. you, uh, get information, advice about what to do and whatever part of their career, how can they reach out to you? Um, I say this with a pure, genuine invitation. If you want to reach out to talk about anything, 
Um, you can find me on Instagram at, uh, at Manhire, uh, or you can email me directly, Matthew at ManhireMedia.com. I respond to all my emails. I make time for anybody that puts the effort into reaching out to me. So uh, just know that your time will be respe- respected and, uh, and reciprocated. And with that, thank you so much. And for everyone that listened, have a wonderful day as well. You guys thought we were done? I don't think so. We still got to wrap it up. Please follow me at Kusa300. Follow my co-host Muhammad at Muhammad.global. Make sure to follow our page at Instagram. Also, make sure to subscribe to all our platforms. We drop every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Thank you. We'll see you next week.